Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Nico Franks. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Coming up in this episode, we hear from Waquara Amirza, who created the preschool show Zane and Zayna via his company Safi Ideas to show young audiences the kind of meaningful diversity he argues they're not seeing on TV. But first, NHS frontline doctor and filmmaker Nidhi Gupta, who has been inspired to crowdfund a documentary on pandemics called Start, Stop, Repeat, following her harrowing experiences of COVID-19. So I came back from the Berlinale kind of, you know, with all the meetings, you know, for the narrative feature and then the pandemic hit and I work in South East London and we were the hottest of hotspots within London, which is the hotspot in the UK. Um, so we saw it pretty early and when lockdown came and the film industry basically collapsed in terms of, you know, most of my friends lost their jobs, you know, I just basically went to my boss and went, where do you need me? You know, just wherever you need me, I'm here. I'm here to work. Um, I'm needed here more than my two days a week. That's what I'm going to do. And so I was on the wards because of my specialty, which is acute medicine, which in non-COVID times is things like heart attacks, strokes, sepsis. So medical emergencies, which during COVID basically was COVID, COVID, COVID. Um, so I was working a lot of days on the COVID wards. And unsurprisingly, with it just literally being in my face every day, I became infected. And I ended up, I mean, I... I didn't expect to end up going in hospital with it. So I expected to get it. And all of my colleagues and all of my friends, we've all had it. Uh, but I didn't expect to kind of, you know, be in fear for my life with it because I ended up in hospital. I managed to thankfully narrowly avoid intensive care, but it was touch and go for a couple of days there because my oxygen needs were going up and I'm not fully recovered. Um, I'm still recovering. Um, so I still get bouts of severe fatigue. Um, insomnia, what I call COVID brain, uh, which is uh, takes a bit longer to form my thoughts and um, articulate them. But it was during kind of that whole process and I was sitting on my sofa just not able to move. I was reading about previous pandemics and the research and it was astounding to me, just shocked me about what, how, how, what we're going through at the moment is exactly what we've gone through before. Like almost hundred years ago to the day, um, in the Spanish flu, like the fact that social distancing, you know, that that came from plague times. You know, we're using the exact same method as plague. You know, that there was in 1918 debates about face masks, that it was at the time a German Austrian bioweapon, you know, as opposed to it being a 5G, you know, Chinese bioweapon. Um, that in, during the Spanish flu, because of the highlighting of inequalities. So, for example, in India, Gandhi's experience of Spanish flu, and he had it, but by the British, solidified his experience because the Spanish flu solidified uh, Satyagraha, which was um, the concept of non-violent resistance to get rid of the British. You know, Koreans, they, you know, there were uprisings against the Japanese empire during the Spanish flu. You know, and then I'm sitting there watching George Floyd's and the BLM protests, and, you know, we're talking about, you know, not just tick box diversity, but trying to get true diversity and reflecting our unequal society. The fact that in a first world country in 2020, we still can't feed all our people. You know, this rush to get back to the old normal. Well, it wasn't that great for a lot of people. And the fact that all of these um, kind of issues are actually come to the fore during the pandemic is not a coincidence. And we, we're not learning from the previous pandemics. 
we're not learning from our own history. You know, we need to find hopefully a positive future so that we have a robust enough society so that when this happens again, and it will happen again at some point, you know, we don't collapse again. So the documentary is called Start, Stop, Repeat. And uh, the idea is for it to be non-profit. So any income generated going to food bank charities. Tell me a bit about what you hope the kind of main thrust of the documentary to be. You mentioned a lot about, you know, learning from previous pandemics. The philosopher George Santayana has a famous quote where he says, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. That's been echoing in my head for months. And that's the main thrust of the documentary and hence the the name Start, Stop, Repeat, that um, we're not learning from our own history and we're not learning those lessons and we keep having to relearn them. So the focus will be is looking at COVID-19, not as an isolated, this was never going to happen. How can we predict this you know, narrative, which is, is not true, but as kind of having a more historical perspective, an objective perspective, that this was always going to happen. It's about what, what can we learn from the previous pandemics and how they shaped society in the longer term to find a way, a positive way through for our longer term from today. Uh, So there's been a lot of kind of catalyst for societal change kind of that came about, you know, because people have shown that they're, you know, they can see the unequal society in their face. You can't ignore it anymore. The fact that the BLM protests, you know, we had them in Ipswich. You know, when was the last time you could think of the Ipswich would have a Black Lives Matter protest? But, you know, that's what's happening. We're having those conversations and it's not a coincidence. It's because, you know, we see the unequal society that we live in. I mean, also within the film industry, so many of my friends and colleagues have lost their jobs. You know, they, they've seen their, their entire careers collapse, you know, within a few weeks. And hundreds of people are needed to make a film or a TV show behind the cameras, but those people are not treated well. They don't have any kind of, you know, job security. You know, two weeks and that's it, they're gone. You know, and, you know, they are literally living from one job to the next in what essentially is a gig economy. And a lot of them have been questioning whether they can continue in the film and TV industry. You know, my, my other job as a doctor has meant that, you know, yes, it's, it stopped me from being a full time filmmaker. But, you know, when the, when the economy collapsed, I had a job to go to. And do you have any idea of what some of the unintended consequences of the coronavirus pandemic might be? Well, I think the un- one of the, some of the positive unintended consequences are things like the fact that people recognising that countries with female world leaders have done better on average. The support of the NHS and of, of, of key workers and of these central people uh, within our society and recognising how important they are, who tend to be in the lowest paid jobs done, you know, more so by people, you know, of black and Asian heritage. And the fact that there's a lot more support in the wider public for that, I think that has been an unintended consequence as well. But again, a positive one. Um, in terms of more negative ones, as I said, things like the kind of the, the political kind of concentration and the undermining of the WHO has been an unintended consequence. And so you're crowdfunding at the moment. You've got a, a £10,000 goal and you're using the Greenlit crowdfunding platform so tell me a bit about why you chose that and how you're aiming to uh, to raise the remaining funding goal um well greenlit um they're not the biggest of crowdfunding websites um you know they're not kickstarter or indiegogo but um the reason why we why i chose them was because they give they provided a personalized service and that i've actually had meetings with their team personally kind of not 
in person, of course, you know, online on Zoom and stuff, but I could never, you know, get to the vice president of marketing and stuff, you know, for Indiegogo, you know, to give me advice and actually give us kind of, you know, a specialized advice on our project. And in terms of how we're going to reach a goal, it, it's because I'm not a well-known filmmaker, you know, this is my debut feature. What I have found is that people are really responding to my story you know, and, and what happened to me and my, my, my kind of perspective and, and my kind of um, inspirations um, for documentaries very much like Ava DuVernay's 13th um, and Adam Curtis's work with Bitter Lake and Hypernormalization. And they're very, very different filmmakers and they're very different films. But what they both do is they take a hypothesis, they take an argument and they take you step by step, um, intelligently, visually, and go through the arguments as to why that hypothesis is correct. And um, as I said, they do it very differently, but I love how they do it because I was very persuaded by both of their arguments, you know, and the way they went through it. I mean, I liken Adam Curtis's work to um, kind of a visual PhD. This is my thesis, and this is how I'm going to explain my thesis. And Ava DuVernay, you know, her films aren't three and a half hours long, <laughs> you know, but she, but she makes the same persuasive argument in a, you know, a time-friendly hundred minutes that's really, you know, that gets to the arguments and she does it so brilliantly and so visually. So, you know, incorporating those inspirations in my work is really important. And finally, how do you see the pandemic impacting the TV and film industry going forward? You mentioned you're working on a narrative project at the moment a sci-fi project, you know, is it feeding into that either practically or into the, the storyline? And yeah, just in terms of the way of working, how do you think it will change? Well, interestingly, because I've been working on the script for the narrative feature for the last four years in terms of, you know, with all the other work that I do, because I also co-run um, an online medical education website and we produce nearly 40 hours of online video content for doctors. But what was interesting is that um, when, the, when the pandemic hit just after um, uh, Berlin Ali, because I was pitching the film with my director and it's about four people stuck in a house who can't go outside. And then, like, well, everyone's going to think I wrote this during COVID. Like, no, it's been four years. But kind of COVID is very much kind of going, oh, my gosh, I've written about COVID without even realizing it. In terms of film and TV industry, you know, we're all still finding our way as to how to film, you know, how to get back to filming. And, you know, I'm doing some medical education filming this month, actually, uh, for a university. And, you know, looking through what the guidelines are saying, and it's like, we don't have these guidelines in hospital, and I'm way more exposed in the hospital compared to what the guidelines are at the moment. But they seem to be changing every week in terms of what you can and can't do and what you should do. And I think, it, it, I mean, the, the new kind of the insurance and, you know, funds that the government released is really important because trying to get insurance was impossible. But also, you know, from my perspective as a doctor, Am I willing at this moment to ask for actors who don't know each other, don't live in the same house, to spend three, four weeks, you know, in a house, isolated, away from their family and friends, and potentially expose them to COVID? And the answer is today, no. I don't think it's worth the risk. Um, it's not good for the industry, but it's good for those individual people and also the crew, you know, just asking people to do that. I just don't think that really works. So it's about what happens, you know, over the next 12 to 18 months with a vaccine, because to get back to normal filming, you know, you 
in terms of we just I don't think it's possible with where we are at the moment with COVID to do it safely in terms of you know that kind of feature film stuff and I know people are doing like isolating the whole crew and cast for two weeks but that's not the kind of filmmaker I want to be where I'm saying to people stay away from your family and friends for three months I just don't think that's an appropriate thing to be asking people to do and I don't want to do it so why would I ask others to do it and I think we're only going to really get back when we've gotten through the pandemic and we will get through it we will get through the pandemic we will come out the other side but it's about what the world will be when it's like that societally but from the point of view from the medical side you know we will get through this and then we will get back to being able to do filming the way we've previously done it and the business side of the industry so you mentioned going to events like Berlinale how long do you see it until those kinds of events can go back to normal in inverted commas. We're talking a lot at the moment about MIPCOM in October, um, companies pulling out of sending executives there. Does October feel unrealistic? And without getting into kind of conjecture and speculation, how long does it feel till, till we get a vaccine? Well, I think October feels too soon. Very much so, because I know Venice, they're trying to, they're saying, no, we're going to have an in-person event. And I'm just going to be astounded if they're going to have even, you know, a quarter of their normal attendees, because I just don't think many people are going to be willing to take the risk of doing that. Um, In terms of without going into conjecture about a vaccine and stuff. It's, it's, it's so difficult because it really is kind of, you know, trying to look into the sands of time, you know, you know look, look at the crystal ball. Um, the way I describe it is this disease is less than 12 months old. You know, if we think about all the other diseases in the world, we still haven't got a cure for tuberculosis and that's centuries old. You know, um, HIV, you know, has gone from a death sentence to now having a better prognosis than diabetes, but that's taken 40 years. 30, you know, 30, 40 years. So this idea that we can, you know, this, this whole thing, oh yeah, we're going to have a vaccine by September. We're going to be out by Christmas kind of thing. Like this is the disease is not even 12 months old. And, you know, it, it's, people are working very hard and they're trying to do as much as they can, as quickly as they can. But, you know, until two years has passed, you can't tell me, you know, with any certainty, what immunity is going to be like two years after you've been infected until two years has actually passed. You can do animal models. You can, you know, you can try and model it. You can look at, you know, what's happening at the moment. But the fact is, is that until time has physically passed for a lot of these things, we don't get the answers to the questions we, we want. And as time goes on and more research occurs, you get more of a consensus that it takes time in that not every academic paper or study that's that's published is fact, is true, is, you know, um, set in stone. None of it is. It, it's an ongoing debate that never ends. So if we get a vaccine out that doesn't work, and then people go out and then everyone gets infected, you know, and then more people die because they think they're covered. Um, you know, I have family members who have to shield and even though lockdown has been eased in the UK, it's like, they're not going anywhere. I'm, I'm, I, you know, I will stand in front of the car and stand in front of the door and, you know, with an axe to stop them leaving, you know, because it's just not safe. It's just not safe. But I also completely understand that if you can't earn a living, people die of poverty as well. Yeah, and it, it, it goes to the robustness of our society and our infrastructure 
um, and our institutions that we don't have a society that's resilient enough to cope with the pandemic, that it's a, it's a choice of work or death kind of thing, which is just a ridiculous kind of, you know, concept, you know, that you have to choose one or the other, die now or die later. It's just, it, it kind of just, it really does my head in about that in terms of that, that goes to kind of the, the choices people are having to make. Dr. Nidhi Gupta, speaking to me, Nico Franks. Aquara Mirza is CEO of Safi Ideas and is an outspoken voice when it comes to diversity in children's content. He's previously criticised the animation industry for failing to feature meaningful diversity in its programming and cites his show, Zayn and Zayna, a cartoon about a Muslim family living on a farm, as an example of how to do diversity properly. He began by talking about how many attempts to feature diversity in children's programming, for example, by using different animals as metaphors for diversity, are not based in reality. Children who are even preschool are very sharp. In this day and age, we live with very intelligent kids, kids that are three and four, are able to use their apps, do quizzes, answer questions. They're amazingly intelligent kids. And you're trying to tell them that in the society we live in, not just the UK, in other parts of the European and Western world, we have black people, we have brown people, we have oriental people, we have all sorts of diverse people, that they can be represented by a yellow zebra and a blue elephant and a black, you know, I don't know, made-up fantasy animal. Come on, guys. Do you think the kids are so that, that silly they don't know? My, I have a granddaughter, and it's a very great example. She's three-year-old, very, very intelligent. She goes to a nursery school. Now, when she goes to a nursery school in London, you know in London, it's a very diverse thing. Tell me how many black, uh, black and white sort of, um, el- you know, let's say an orange zebra is she meeting? How many pink, um, you know, horses is she meeting? She isn't meeting any. She's meeting real people. So here she's living this sort of artificial world and everybody's sort of playing around with their minds. Oh, look how diverse we are. We have these colored fantasy characters that don't really exist. She goes in the real world and she's hit by an Indian, a Muslim, a Jewish person, a man in a turban someone from Romania, right? There is no realism and they treat kids honestly as though they're stupid and they're not. Kids are super intelligent at this age. Everything is driven by commercial advertising, by money. Can you sell this program? Can you, can you do this or whatever? So first of all, I think there's a fear that this, if I went down this road and produced real characters that were real animated characters of diversity, I may lose audience or I may not get advertisers. So there's a financial pressure. Secondly, I think there are always what I would call media agendas of when it's time the right to push the boat because the market is not ready for it or the market may have some uh, wave against it. There may be an opposite force. So I think it, it, it's sort of, I, I don't know what the best word, but some of it's political and some of it's financial. But it all comes down to that no one's got any intention. They're not looking at the bigger picture. They're not looking that, you know, these diverse markets spend money. Some of them are very rich markets. They're wealthy. They're influential. They, they, you know, if I just take the Muslim market, you know, there's a couple of million people. No matter what the media says, most of them are really well-off people, highly educated. They spend more than anybody else on travel, more than anybody else on food, more than anybody else on branded clothes. And they, and they spend more money on their kids' education than you could imagine because that's the way they're brought up. What I'm saying that these diverse markets, anywhere in any country, whether we are talking about the UK where we have a Chinese community, a black community, or a Muslim community, or a Jewish community, these are actually, in a sense, those that you'll be aiming for are very well off. They're actually 
highly educated, they spend a lot of money. And so I, I, I do not understand the argument that I might lose revenue or might decrease the commercial value of my product. People know we're in a beautifully diverse country. They know the market's good. They know all the great things. They know how wonderful diversity is. And so I don't think it's that they're ignorant. Oh, we live in it. We don't, we don't know this is a diverse market. I don't think at all. I think it is a, a, a very commercial-led decision because of not knowing the market. It is the ignorance and, and not having that desire to understand the market. To what extent has the growth of viewing on platforms like YouTube helped you get a route to market? Uh, I, I think it's a game changer. I think it's, it's a godsend. And it's given a lot of the, 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 the big producers a bit of a kick up the backside because they are getting millions of views. You know, there are some uh, ethnic animation. They're in 20, 30 million views. They are getting loyal followers. They are getting merchandise sold. So w- what's happened is it's like with anything, you see. If I'm, go back to a very simple analogy, if I'm living in a small town in England and there's no halal meat, what am I going to do? I'm going to open my own shop, right? So in a sense, it's, it's a very simple analogy that we, are, we as people are fed up of not having the platform that we deserve. So what we do, we start our own. I mean, I've spent nearly half a million quid on my animation because no one will talk to me. I spent two years knocking on every animation house's door, broadcaster, saying, please, I have a great idea. It's nothing to do with religion. It's just a, a family living in England. No, door shut, door shut, door shut, door shut. So then what do I do? I make my own animation. I create my own platform. I start to get views. And then I suddenly get interest. And then maybe one day these big channels may come to me. What do you hear from the audience and the feedback that you get from the audience? As a Muslim, for example, we have lots of religious programs, as does every other religion. There are religious, every religion, there's programs for kids, whether it's Christianity or Judaism or whatever it is, there's lots of shows. We've never pushed it as a, as a religious program. We are simply a Muslim family living in England. We don't have any form of religious education or prescription. That, to our viewers, has been a bit of fresh air. Every day they've been bombarded with religious programs, you know, how to pray, how to do this. We say we're not going down that road. We don't want to go down the road. So we've had incredible feedback Say thank God that my kids can just have some entertainment with a nice, loving message. And wow, can we have more of it? And, and we get sort of messages all the time. When is the next episode coming out? When is the next episode coming out? When is the next episode coming out? Because we're just entertainment. And they see it nice. It's a rural, sort of semi-rural setting. It's a woman who's a, a vet and her husband, she, she and her husband have moved to a, a little farm where they're bringing their kids up. They love their animals and they just have fun and they have a nice sort of life. And, and, and our Muslim viewers, predominantly Muslim, are saying, thank God, we're, we're tired of too much religion. They keep telling us, this is lovely. This is mainstream. Anybody can watch it and thank you very much. <laughs> And in terms of the production on Zane and Zayna, how diverse is the writer's room? We have three writers. Okay. We have a, Dave, a guy called David Garbit, who's, you know, a, a sort of, re- you know, well-known character and he does lots of mainstream animation. We have a girl called Hina Chaudhry, who's a Muslim. And we have a, a lady called Sarah Bodjner, who's uh, writes for Bollywood stuff. So we, we have, we have diversity and, and in a sense, and I'm the editor of a lot of them. You see, the problem is as industry, the ethnic market hasn't evolved. There's not enough voiceovers, there's not enough actors, there's not enough writers because they've never been able to get into the market. So we, we are, we are, we are, we are, we don't have much choice.
And in terms of the voiceovers, we, again, we have a mix. We have Muslims, we have Jewish people, we have Christian people, we have black, we have white, we have everybody. It is a very diverse. The voices are actually of those characters. We have brought realism into it. <laughs> How about the impact of the Black Lives Matter movement? Are you seeing evidence of change already as a result of that? I have two views. I think there was a sort of a, a knee-jerk reaction where everybody and everything was just wall-to-wall, 24-7, you know, we're diverse, we're this, we're that. And, and you saw it everywhere, you know, Sony Music, we're going to invest $100 million in this, that company, we're going to throw this and that. A BBC, we're going to chuck 150 million quid into it. Then when you ask the question, well, how do I access that? Then no one knows, right? Emails are gone, they come back. We are looking into it. So I, I think in terms of it, 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 it kicked everybody into, oh my God, what we're going to do? You know, we've, oh, I didn't know what diversity was, you know, never thought about it. And suddenly I know about it. Or suddenly I'm forced to do it. And all it's done is a knee jerk reaction. Although I'm optimist, I'm actually in this case a pessimist so we were talking about the importance of teaching children about cultural diversity but to what extent is it actually the parents who need to be taught more about cultural diversity Uh, absolutely fabulous statement and a question i think you're you're spot on uh ultimately and i've said this and and i've you know discussed it with 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 many uh, people at time i do believe that no kid is born a racist no kid is born hating one another. No kid is born, I don't like this, or I don't like that. We're all conditioned. Every single one of us are conditioned. And we're conditioned in the main environment we live in, which is the, the lounge and the television and our kitchen. And I'm afraid that parents are, let, let's talk about the, the majority, the masses, the mainstream people, are, are conditioned by the environment, the friend, the peers they work with, and a lot of the media at the moment. And you know, and I know that in terms of a political sense, this last year has been very difficult politically for the diverse community. There's been a lot of anti sort of, you know, feeling because of the political message that was what, what came across. So when you, when you are a parent and you only see one view, you know, you, you're going to endorse it. And if your kid's sitting there who's a, you know, three-year-old Sarah sitting there and saying, oh, yeah, it's those guys that are always causing trouble the kid's going to pick it up and then he may hear it somewhere else. Where's the balanced voice? Where in education, there's nothing. There is no education system in this country that says we are a diverse country. We should learn to respect each other. Where is it in the media? I'm afraid it's not in the media. Where is it in society? It's not in society. So the parents just run along with the, with the wave of, of, the, of the emotion that's going. And we, we all have to take responsibility. The corporations, the media, the, the, the education society of saying, well, hang on, look, why are we one-sided? Why do we have this very biased approach about, about diversity? You know, we're so blessed in England. England is absolute breathtaking country. We should celebrate the beauty of able to go out and get a, a, a whether it's an Arabic food or a Jamaican food or, a, you know, and go out and do this and meet people, go and see a synagogue, go and see a temple. You know, it, it, honestly, you we do not know how lucky we are and how wonderful the society is. And we never hear about that. All we hear is the negative, the negative, negative. And I'm afraid we as media people, whether we're filmmakers, documentary makers, journalists, we, we, we just run with the wave. There's no one saying, no, guy, stop. And diversity can often be an almost unhelpful term because it obviously 
it, it used as a kind of catch-all term for lots of different yeah. things because you can talk about yeah. diversity in gender, diversity in religion, diversity in uh, sexual orientation, disability. Are there other sides of diversity that you're looking to explore in in your show, be it, you know, characters of different sexual orientations, characters with disabilities, things like that? I mean, look, we are a, pre, a preschool animation and we will explore it. For example, in our animation, there are two characters. There's a character called Carla. She's a, um, a girl with blue eyes and she's in a wheelchair, but she's crazy sportsman. She's the best basketball player in the school. She's like loves football and she's in a wheelchair. So we, we, we have that. Tom is a, is a, is a, is a, is a, a, a black kid. Um, again, he's, does what every other kid is great friends with everybody. We have that diversity. We, you know, we, we have all that. We, we have purposely in every script written in a whole range of things. And for a preschool of three or four year old, we're doing more than anybody else could ever do. And of course, as we grow, we will look at all other issues. We are not scared of anything. That's all for today's episode. There'll be more from the podcast next week, but in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest developments by following C21 online, on mobile and on social media. Thanks for listening.